0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. So, <clears throat> okay. Oh. Okay. at one time, the Buddha was stricken with a deadly, painful illness. Severe, deadly and intensely painful physical sensations arising throughout the body. He experienced it as though unoppressed and without being distressed, patient, mindful and fully aware of the painful physical sensations. It goes on to say that... This is from the sutra. It goes on to say that he put aside or he cured cured himself of that uh, deadly illness and revived his vitality and lived for another, nine, uh, another 10 months before he then passed away. And so I want to speak about how that happened or how it is described to have happened in the commentaries, the sub-commentaries and by Sayadaw, who is the grandfather of this tradition of practice. So the first commentary says that the Buddha was had developed mindful insight discerning the nature of sensations. The nature of sensations. You know, we were talking about sensations and the four material elements. And so it says the Buddha was mindfully, mind, it developed mindful insight discerning the nature, the true nature of sensations. So the sub-commentary to that commentary, now these are people commenting on commenting on comment. <laughs> says that Discerning with insight knowledge the momentary existence of painful sensations breaking up into segments, or we would say pixels. So it's not kind of a global pain, but it's the clarity, the clear perception of just moment-to-moment unfolding of this, what initially appears to be a solid pain, my knee, my back, my into just Pieces, little chuk, 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 pieces of, of of that sensation. So, either seeing them, seeing these these sensations, either as painful, impermanent, or seeing they're not self-characteristic. Seeing that these are substanceless, material elements being momentarily experienced. Hmm? Being patient means that he accepted and tolerated the sensations within himself. That means he accepted, he acknowledged the pain. He was there for it at the level that it was experienced. Okay, Not making more of it, not making a knee out of sensations, but just the sensations themselves. Uh, He was there, he accepted, and he tolerated the sensations. Tolerated not meaning he endured them like gritting his teeth and endured them he endured he, he tolerated them with full awareness of their unpleasant dukkha characteristic fleeting and impersonal momentariness hmm? meaning that he uh, established ongoing observation without shifting and moving his posture that's what it means he was able to just be there with it remember i talked about the leg of the log burning—it's like that. Just watching this impersonal, unpleasant, uh, fleeting momentariness. Now you've got to see the momentariness of the pixels. This whole this whole package of experience, pain, is made up of just pixels of momentary, fleeting, momentary things. said that the sub-commentary number two says that the Buddha removed the illness and dwelled contemplating through effort and undertaking repair of vitality the vitality of the body meaning that the illness was stilled or cured and contemplating means that he was observing these phenomena without the filter of concept No, there's panat. Panyati and Paramata. Paramata means direct, observable experience, the tasting of the actual quality of the sensations. Panyati means conceptualizing it into uh, a leg that hurts or back that aches. So he was there observing it without entanglement with concepts, no concepts. There was no concept of a being, no concept of... I'm a being, this is happening to me. no concept of a form, no concept of a foot, a back, a stomach, or whatever it was that was in pain. and no concept of a mode of the body. It was not that the body was moving or not that the body was healing or not no, no understanding, no conceptual understanding of what was happening to the body because there was no body. there was no being. there was no form to the body, there was no no organ that this was happening into happening to. It was just pure. Sensation arising somewhere in space—not me, not mine, not who I am, not a body, not an organ—not a—but being felt clearly and known, discerned precisely. And it says by noticing, or by contemplating both the mind and the body in this way. Hmm? The mind is the one that knows; the body is the sensations that uh, are being felt. and and, and the noticing of the mind is necessary because uh, (coughs) keeping the clarity and the continuity going takes monitoring you have to monitor that so the mind is paying attention to the mind that is knowing these momentary sensations Hmm? contemplating the mind and body in this way he rooted out the pain and then it says through panoramic great vipassana It is through panoramic great vipassana that the pain was rooted out. What does panoramic great vipassana mean? Because if the pain is to be rooted out, and if the illness is to be cured or stilled, it is through panoramic great vipassana that that will take place. So, how did this happen? Buddha said, huh, where is it? Yeah. Uh-huh. The seven factors of awakening, perfectly discerned by me, based on his personal experience, when activated within oneself and repeatedly developed, when there's an ongoing development of the seven factors, conduce to knowing through extraordinary insight. And they conduce, parentheses, to knowing through penetration. The knowing through extraordinary insight is knowing the uh, both the characteristic of the sensation, the characteristic of each mind that's knowing the sensation, and knowing the arising and passing away of each one of those things, or all of those things, so that every moment of observation is seen clearly to be the arising of a physical or mental phenomena that arises, is known, and it passes away. And there's no, what would you call it, no continuity between this moment arising and this one. They are discrete, separate physical experiences, discrete, separate mental experiences there's no one being carried or experiencing it from this moment to this moment to this moment that is an assumption that we make because it's here and it's here and it's here we assume there's something that was there for all three but what you see through the clarity and the the quickness of your perception is that no this has arisen is experienced and passed away something else follows immediately Arises, is known, and passes away. It drops completely off the screen, and another thing arises, is known, and passes away. When seen in this way, this this kind of uh, extraordinary insight or panoramic uh, great vipassana, the knowledge of what is being observed. Uh, well we say you slip through the gaps you you pierce the veil of delusion you penetrate the veil of delusion whatever delusion is covering up this experience my leg the minus the legness the aching the pain all of those delusions you slip through the, the mindfulness slips through them and understands how things really are discrete momentary Individual pixels of physical and mental phenomena, which, when not seen, glom all together into a me, a body and a mind. That's me. But when seen at that level, that rapidly rising and passing away level, you see through the any conceptual uh, overlay on on that experience. And what is it that's seen? Well. What is seen is the impermanent uh, painful compounded conditioned nature of all things. And in this we begin to uh, we begin to see the the impersonal nature of every experience that we have or that arises it's not even we have it, that arises in the mind it is impersonal. It's like, I've, did I tell the story last night about the tapestry? No. Okay. So you know, you go into a museum, you enter the big, great hall of the museum, and there, on the far wall, is a tapestry, 20 feet wide, 12 feet tall. And you look at this tapestry. God, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's a picture of two women sitting at a table, uh, on which is a bowl of fruit, and they're having a conversation. You can see exquisite detail of their their expression. You can almost guess what they're talking about. And you look at that; and it's like, yeah. And the mind creates this story about this tapestry. And as you walk across the great hall to get to this tapestry, uh, after a while, you can't see the whole thing, but you're, you can see the bowl of fruit. And wow, the bowl of fruit looks luscious, you know. And you get really close to it because it's at eye level, and you can look at that bowl of fruit. And you're still imagining there's a bowl of fruit there, you know. There's an apple, and a banana, and a peach, and a pear. Wow, cool. And you get closer because the the museum docent is out of the room for a while. You (laughs) You get really close with your magnifying lens and you look and you lose touch with the tapestry, you lose touch with the table and the conversation, you lose touch with the bowl of fruit, you lose touch with the fruit. All you see is colored threads. That's all you see is colored threads. These are the pixels that make up this Whole story. The story of your life, whether you're suffering or happy, is made up of pixels. Pixels. There's no story. There's nothing happening there. But when you step back, when you stay way back here in the story, this is where you suffer. Not always, because there's a lot of joy in our life, in, in our everyday, ordinary, uh, human existence. Life. There's a lot of joy, there's a lot of pleasure, there's a lot of uh, compassion, there's a lot of good service work. There's, there's a lot of things that we do that are quite wholesome, of course. <coughs> Nevertheless, this is also the dimension, or this is also the perspective in which sadness, fear, loss, anxiety frustration, disappointment, depression, that's where this all happens too. To be free of that, we need to know how, how, how to pierce the veil of illusion to see the reality behind the appearance. The appearance is, I'm so angry, I'm so anxious, I'm so fearful, I'm so frustrated, I'm so depressed. That's the appearance when you pierce the veil of that and you see the pixels of mental and physical phenomena giving rise to that appearance, there's no suffering in there. There's no me to suffer in there. There is dukkha. There is impermanence. There is the non-self or the conditioned nature of all of that. But there's no me there to suffer. This is the beginning, the beginning of liberation. The beginning the beginning of disentangling our sense of self from this mind-body that, that's, hap- that's happening here and really seeing that it's pixels and you really understand that it is that they are impersonal they're conditioned into existence by all that we've been talking about and more when you own them or claim them or hang on to them then there's the potential to suffer but when you let them arise and pass away, and you see them arising and passing away as they are, and you understand how impersonal that is, you get to enjoy everything. You don't get to fear any, You don't need to fear anything. You don't have to feel anxious about anything. You don't get frustrated by anything. Everything is there. You don't turn off. Turn away from life. You don't disappear. Life doesn't disappear. You know your relationships don't disappear. Your jobs don't disappear. Nothing disappears. You just stop suffering. Now, what is wrong with that? Do you have to remind yourself of that during the day? Do you have to remind yourself of what? Do you, in your own practice, do you have to remind yourself of that during the day, or use you pass that? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not there all the time, no. But I've seen it enough to know that uh, when, uh, I, I know when, I know, when I start suffering consciously, when I start suffering, I'm not paying attention. It just makes me pay attention more. It seems like, initially, I'm paying attention to suffering. I'm paying attention to pain and suffering, but as soon as you get in touch with it, it's not—it's not pain and suffering. You know, it's when you're when you're unconscious and unaware of it, then you suffer. As soon as you become aware, you stop suffering. It's kind of counterintuitive, but it's real. This is how, this is how it happens. This is how the development of the seven factors of awakening that allows the mind to penetrate the veil of illusion and seeing things through great panoramic vipassana frees the mind from, well, both mental unhealthiness and in time physical unhealthiness. Now, how is it that in time physical unhealthiness is also overcome? One last comment here. is or was uh, a monk, a Burmese monk, in the last century who was a scholar and a practitioner and he developed or he, he practiced Vipassana in a way that he realized that he didn't have to be a monk or a nun for decades in order to practice mindfulness and Vipassana to the point of liberation successfully. And so he was invited by a wealthy fellow in Rangoon to uh, to come and teach at a monastery or a meditation center that was built just for him, and it was primarily for lay people, for householders like ourselves, those who did not have the opportunity or did not want the opportunity to take the opportunity to be monk or nun in this lifetime, but still, nevertheless, wanted to practice the teachings of the Buddha and to see if they had the paramis, if they had the qualities of mind to Uh, reach the unconditioned and to free themselves from some some level of of suffering. He is the grandfather of the tradition of Vipassana as practiced in the West because at his center, taught by him, Manindra went, Deepama went, and Upandita went. And from them, Jack and Joseph also practiced, Sharon practiced, and they, uh, and then and, and then others too. I mean, but primarily uh, through the Mahasi Center, uh, practice so that those teachers, when they return to the West, were teaching essentially in a format straight from the Mahasi Center. And he says of the seven Bojangas, the seven factors of. Awakening. When noting and insight knowledge are exceptionally good, no special effort is needed to make the noted object appear. And when all is in balance, the factor of equanimity is developed. But this is very hard to know. Equanimity is very hard to know. <clears throat> and he says of uh, the the practice. Uh, in reference to the healing that takes place both at the center and the Buddha's uh, healing, and other stories of, of healing of monks at the time of the Buddha, he says, in reference to the healing through meditation, the disease is cured because the unhealthy material elements that we've looked at, the unhealthy material elements, vanish or are extinguished after having been overwhelmed by the good healthy, lively, dynamic, and pure material elements which were causally conditioned into existence by the seven factors of awakening. Because we know some of the material elements in the body are born of the mind. And when the mind is in a heightened state of purity, no defilements, and vitality, all of that uh, the pliancy, lightness, and straightness, and all that, when the mind is that lively, the materiality that is born of it is lively, and healthy, and vital. And if you sustain that level of mind, lively, pure mind, long enough to replace as much of the unhealthy materiality as possible, then eventually, and in time, the healthy materiality gains the upper hand and can put aside uh, diseases, or symptoms symptoms at least, and diseases, uh, possibly, if the karmic uh, profile would allow it. So this is how the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, when developed, Condition material elements that overcomes disease. There, right? Mm. How else are you gonna explain it? Antibiotics? Mm. I don't think so. Uh, I'm gonna answer you if you can repeat the name of that monk who Uh Mahasi, M-H, M-A-H-A-S-E-S-I, Mahasi Sayadaw. So that is the um, all I got to say. <laughs> uh, any questions? Yeah. When I look at the chart about materiality. Yeah, materiality. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, if they talk about security, lightness, bodily, I mean, bodily yeah. communication, vocal yeah. communication. What, um, what one of these elements are they? Yeah, those are a little bit hard to understand. But what I would ask you to look at is the uh, alterable elements, element, uh, the material elements 22, 23, and 24 lightness, softness, and adaptability. Mm-hmm. When those are present, when those are activated, those are the healthy elements. Those are the healthy elements. So you follow those across and you see that those are born of lightness of mind. Lightness of mind. Huh? Mm-hmm. So when the mind and lightness of mind, this is a this is a catch all for all of those qualities of mind that I spoke about, the lightness, appliance, the adaptability, the strength of mind, the stability of mind, the lightness of mind. Mm-hmm. Huh? When those are strong, they give rise to these material elements that are light, soft and adaptable. That's health. That would be physical health, the elements of physical health. Hmm? But you also notice, and and this was interesting in looking at this chart, that another source for those lightness, softness, and adaptability is sound. Music. Hey, music therapy for health. Somebody's already thought of that, I know. (laughs) But it's true. Music can really change the mind. Some music. I mean, some music can change it in the wrong direction. But some music can really lift the mind into a light, pliant, you know, aware state of mind. Also, and that's good for your health. That's what they're saying. Also light is food. Food. Yeah, hello. Don't you feel, don't you, when you eat, don't you feel that? Sometimes, you know, when, you, when you're really hungry and you and you eat a little bit, not too much. Ah. Right, the mind, li- the mind lightens up and brightens up. The body lightens up. It does. If you, if you pay attention to these things. You'll see. The lightness would be uh, <clears throat> both the opposite of heaviness and also the opposite of darkness. I'm just trying to. Del- no, light, light, uh, weight, 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 lightness. Okay. The lightness of of that. Although you know, uh, the mind does lighten up. I don't mean heavy lighten up. The mind when when your perception is clear. When as, you know, the momentum of your awareness uh, gains a certain momentum, then the perceptual field of the mind brightens up, and it's not uncommon for people to report uh, that you know there that lights uh, in their meditation experience. Lights sometimes colored, sometimes just bright, sometimes flashing, strobing, you know, all kinds of things. I could I could read you about lights. Where did I have that? Lights, lights. Let's see, common ground? Mm-hmm. Lights. No. Here. I'll be that one. There are a bunch of, um, and I didn't get into this, just just didn't have time, but there are a bunch of uh, pseudo-Nibbanas, uh, states of mind or experiences of mind that arise that would make you believe that it's Nibbana, but it's not really. And one of them is lights. when, When the perceptual field of the mind brightens up, it says you can also well this is from Mahasi's uh, manual of insight which we've recently had translated it says you can see light simply because of concentration sometimes vipassana insight also makes you see it for example it may be seen as a result of concentration when practicing tranquility meditations or contemplating the virtues of the buddha etc or in vipassana when not mindful enough to observe the phenomena moment to moment the yogi may report experience of very bright lights or as if the whole room is illuminated with light radiating from his or her eyes, nose, mouth, or as if the moon was radiating light on his or her body or, or see some bright lights in their eyes. Uh, at different times you can see lights. Let me do, 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 do. You can see them disappearing, observing, vanishing. Da, da, da. Some meditators find the light to be small and last for a while. Sometimes they find it similar to a torchlight, sometimes to be ball-shaped, sometimes to be a circle, turning around and round like a tray. Some meditators see it on a big scale, brightening the whole room or wider. It often lasts a long time without disappearing, in spite of observing it. And you can find it in several forms, like the, f- just like as if being in the front of a car or a lantern, or as if the moon was shining in the room, even though when you open your eyes there's no light. You had that experience? Yeah. No? Oh. Yeah, it happens a lot. Well, once you get to that stage of practice, it happens a lot. But a lot of people mistake it and think, ah, I got enlightened. <laughs> didn't. No, that's not enlightenment. But because the the mind is so bright, the mind is so bright, it, we actually see it as light. And and honestly, you'll think you'll think that somebody turned on the lights in the room. You know, your eyes are closed. You think, oh, and you, and you open your eyes to look, and no, no lights on. like that. Yeah, it's kind of phenomenal. You know. but if you get if you get seduced by it, you get into playing with it. You know, then you're stuck. So again, just like any other experience, you just have to know, oh, seeing, you know, brightening, fascination. I wonder what this, wondering what's going on, and that way you just uh, don't get entangled in it. But you just notice it as oh, just a momentary arising and passing away due to conditions. Okay. Yeah. Any suggestions for just in the midst of daily householder life, how to increase that continuity of attention? Well, the standard answer is wise attention. The standard answer, the, the answer for everything is wise attention. How do you do? You know, how do you become more mindful? Wise attention. Uh, I would pick, you know, in daily life. I would I would pick, uh, you know, different activities to pay attention to. That's one way. Uh, you can take brushing your teeth and practice that strong awareness of brushing your teeth for a week, uh, and then establish that as a habit of mindfulness. And then feeding the cat, take that for a practice for a week or two, and then, you know, t- checking your checking your email. Wow, if you make that a practice, whoosh, you'll get enlightened quick. <laughs> Maybe, or or any anything else that you do, especially things that you do every day, many times, Take a, make it a point. But because because they're a habit, it's hard to be mindful of. It's hard to remember to be mindful of it. So you need a lot of reminders. And the other thing is to um, practice the paramis. If you practice the paramis, those ten qualities of mind that uh, the the awakening qualities of the mind: generosity, mm-hmm. loving kindness, truthfulness, patience, equanimity, understanding. Pronunciation, energy, whatever they are. Uh, if you practice them, take a take one. Mark's doing a whole series this year, right, on the Paramis. You know, get into it. That that is the foundation for liberating insight. The development of the Paramis, which are all householder practices, and we get a chance to practice them all every day. Uh, if you if you to the extent that those are developed in your in your ordinary life, they're the foundation upon which liberating insight is developed. Uh, uh, On the other page, 52 mental factors, 25 wholesome. Some have the two in front of it. And that would be the mind and the mental states. Um, Mind is the the practice that knows. Yes. Is that correct? And 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 mental states would be... These. uh, Yes, that's what I'm referring to. The the mental states are these 52 things that arise. The mind is one, the buoyancy and... Pliancy, One, one is the mind, and one is the mental states. Yes, I think to to understand it a little bit better. Uh, Well, you'll have to wait till I come back and offer a full offer a full day on Chapter One, (laughs) because it's it's too much too much to to really explain the what's the relationship between the mind and the mental states, how they arise, when they arise, when they don't arise, what object they take in each moment. There's a lot of details. Just know that. Keep practicing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Anne? In the review of the literature and the research that you did, did um, I know that there have been studies about the impact of prayer. When I say a prayer for somebody else's healing, yeah. they've actually seen results. Yeah. Has anything been done behind uh, you, you know one of these one of these pages here is about loving kindness but it's uh, one of these research things but it's loving kindness uh, affecting oneself it's not affecting others but you know intercessory prayer is a lot like loving kindness may you be healthy may you be happy may you, be, you know. May you be healed quickly and uh, you know since the first research came out in the year 2000 on intercessory prayer there have been over 6,000 uh, scientific you know to some degree of scientific studies on the power of intercessory prayer. Six thousand. Pretty amazing. You know, don't forget to pray. You know, or to to, to you know, do your metta or whatever for, for other people. It you know it may work. Thank you for listening.